0: I love Colette I'm crazy for Colette But oh that's Mitzi I kiss Colette And I get
1: all upset But oh that's Mitzi
0: This is How Would Lubitsch Do It? A podcast in which we discuss the works of director Ernst Lubitsch one film at a time. It is November 1917 And Matt Sieverson joins us today to discuss The Merry Jail. Come visit ErnstCast.com if you'd like show notes, resources as to where you might find the films we'll be discussing, or just to say hi. Hello, everyone. We are here with Matt Severson. Matt, can you tell us about yourself? What do you do? And what, in God's name, convinced you to say yes to hopping on a podcast about one of the least in demand Ernst Lubitsch movies?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Hi, everyone. My name is Matt Severson. I'm the director of the Margaret Herrick Library, which is the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences Film Research Library. Uh, the Academy's library has been in existence since roughly around the time that the Oscars were founded. Uh, the Academy was founded in 1927. Uh, so we ha- we're, you know, along with the Cinematheque Francaise, one of the world's largest film research libraries with a, a kind of an immense collection of 13 million photographs, million clipping files, almost 100,000 screenplays, costume production design, drawings, posters, animation art, etc. So it's a a vast archive and it's uh, really like being Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory every day. Lubitsch is one of my all-time favorite directors. Uh, So this is not twisting my arm to be on your podcast. In fact, I had, when I heard from a colleague of mine, Derek Jaffe, who was with you recently on uh, one of the earlier episodes. Yeah, um, on the
0: previous one, actually.
1: Oh, very good. Well, I was just like, what? I like what an incredible idea. And then it was like, well, and can I meet Devin? And this sounds like <laughs> an amazing opportunity. And uh, he's one of the great masters of, uh, of what we would think of as classical narrative cinema. And, you know, I would rank him... You know, with people that worked in the Hollywood system, along with Hitchcock and Ford, he is just almost peerless in my in my mind. So anyway, it's a pleasure to be here with you.
0: Earlier, we were chatting about about our mutual affection for uh, Lubitsch as a formalist. So I think that might be a good way to start. What about Ernst Lubitsch um, at any point in his career as a formalist, as a designer of cinema as a language? Uh, what about him speaks to you?
1: I am really taken with, if we're talking about formalism, there is an elegance to the way that he composes his frames. I would say that that was one of the first things that really kind of screamed at me when I, I, I'm not 100% sure that this was my first Lubitsch film, but the movie One Hour with You, uh, also one of his, like, not... Most well known films, a film that I basically almost stumbled into at the UC- UCLA Film Archive many, many, many years ago. And I was actually sk- skipping work one night to go see this film, mm-hmm. which was on a double bill with Love Me Tonight. It was one of the most magical film going experiences of my life. And in the midst of, you know, this kind of romantic sex comedy, I was so taken with the you know, at first you're looking at the art deco production design, but then I was noticing the economy and almost the austerity of the way that he would frame his shots cut within them. They were not, they are not the traditional MGM or paramount film from that period. There's aspects of them that look like other studio films from that time, but there is um, there's an economy there is a love and non-judgmental way that he is with his characters that I find very appealing. And the way that he cuts his films, which I think is a, that's a thread that runs through all of the great filmmakers, I believe. Uh, the way he cuts them uh, is so precise and elegant that that's what really spoke to me at first.
0: One little thread I want to pull on there is is the idea of the kind of Paramount or MGM style. And I, I often see that in writing about especially this, this era of Lubitsch, the, the 30s, um, at least the, the pre-code stuff. I see people drawing parallels between... Uh, you know, for example, the MGM style of *The Merry Widow* versus the Paramount style of his other uh, Chevalier uh, McDonald musicals and of stuff like *Design for Living* and *Trouble in Paradise*. Um, just out of curiosity, small tangent: Do you see Lubitsch as someone who is, you know, influenced all that much by the studio he's working with? And what's the mechanism of that?
1: Oh, that's a great, great question. I, I think definitely. I mean, he definitely adopts to the style. There is. A, clearly a difference between the Mary Widow and the earlier Chevalier McDonald films. However, the core of who Lubitsch is as a filmmaker is it, it carries over beautifully. Mm-hmm. I would say looking at Ninotchka is a really good example of that austerity uh, because, you know, I think you could look at the Mary Widow in 34. It was a lavish production. It was one of the, I think it was one of the most expensive films made at MGM at the time. You feel the lushness and its sumptuous, you know, production design and and that, which is a far cry from from the Paramount, which you know, the Paramount glow or the Paramount shimmer that they would refer to. Uh, there's an elegance to it that I think that's probably what really appealed to me about Trouble in Paradise and Whenever with You and Design for Living. MGM obviously had far more. At its disposal in terms of uh, production and, and set and costumes and that, and I think he does a beautiful job. There's you know great humor in the way that he's using production design in The Merry Widow, but by the time he gets to 1939 and Ninotchka, you know 1939 big year Gone with the Wind, big films Wizard of Oz, and you look at Ninotchka, which is I think also a masterpiece, and. It is so simple. The frames are, it's almost the, the antithetical MGM film because it's not overstuffed. In fact, it's understuffed. I always think of the sequence where Melvin Douglas and Greta, Greta Garbo are going to walk across when they're first kind of meeting. It's like a simple set with like a stoplight, I believe, on the corner, uh, or the scene where they see the hat in the window. I mean, It's a very unadorned window. I mean, yes, it's Paris via MGM, but he's not adding, he's like taking away items. Whereas if you looked at other MGM films from that were made around that time, they put everything they can into those frames. I find it very appealing that Lubitsch in a way does the opposite. He's taking everything out that is not essential to what we need to see to understand the narrative.
0: It's interesting how his career kind of ramps up in a very uh, severe way, uh, starting basically now. Like, The Mary Jail is, uh, at least in terms of his surviving films, and there are a lot of films that have not survived since the previous one, Shoe Palace Pincus. That said, The Mary Jail is is to me, this, this clear step towards this kind of early maximalism he'd hit. And it almost feels like starting with, I mean, you could probably peg it at around loves of the Pharaoh, (laughs) you know, starting there, it almost feels like he made efforts. And I'm sure this will be played out later in over the coming year um, efforts to strip down everything that's unnecessary and to find his style by taking away. There was a process of subtraction that happened. I mean, all the way up to I would say Clooney Brown, which in so many ways feels like one of his most humble movies, and that's his last completed film.
1: Agreed. I, I agree with you a hundred percent about Clooney Brown. And and rewatching the Mary Jail prior to talking with you today, I was really struck by that. And also I see the Mary Jail, I mean you can see so many of the seeds that would get developed in his films of the Mid twenties through the thirties and the rest of his career, you know, I'd be, I would love to see documentation if it exists, if we have him on record of talking about this, because I don't, I wonder if it was, you know, a natural aesthetic that he had, or you know what pulled him in that direction, because it's, it's very unique among the filmmakers of that time. I think I
0: think there's a lot of commonalities here in in his operetta based works. This is the first surviving of his operetta-based films and you can start to see the kind of the tropes of that of that form I'm glad you mentioned the the kind of mid-20s films because, yeah, so so This Is Paris. Um, this film has a very interesting relationship to that film um, the, our, the, for the two people in our audience who have seen <laughs> So This Is Paris at this point. Um, the Mary Jail, uh, you might recognize some plot beats uh, from that film. And that is because uh, So This Is Paris is based off of the French vaudeville play uh, Le Réveillon, which I probably butchered the Pronunciation of And The Merry Jail is based off of uh, Johann Strauss's operetta Die Fledermaus. Both of those are based off of the same farce from 19th century German playwright Julius Roderick Benedict's called... Das. Oh, I'm, I'm not going to be able to pronounce this. The English, The English translation of which is The Prison. This is why I edit my podcast. Thanks. folks. And so both of these are, are one step removed from the same source material. And so there's so much in this that feels almost uncannily familiar to those of us familiar with the, the you know, the, the more obscure films in the mid 20s. It's very interesting how due to both just reusing similar source material and the form, we can see these these rhymes in his career.
1: Yes, ab- absolutely. I, I thought of that also when uh, when I was watching this. And I think you can see also strains of The Marriage Circle, When I Were With You. Angel, I think, is also in there. I found it a much more resonant film that I, when I first saw it, I, I saw this as a much more minor film. Uh, work in in his early work and i think i was completely off base and frankly let's give devin credit because devin found the best version of this film that's uh, <laughs> on youtube um, unbelievably on youtube and uh, it's a great restoration and uh, a great print so um i highly recommend check- checking it out
0: It's a print that, um, according to the first title card, originates with the State Film Archive of the GDR. So, (laughs) even this print has quite a history. Um, I mean, this film too. I mean, it's it's interesting how much is starting to come together here, even just in terms of his team. Uh, You have Theodore Sparkle, his most consistent cinematographer for the rest of this period in his career until he left for America. You have Kurt Richter, the famous production designer and art director who whose credit is generally as Big as Lubitsch is during this Berlin period, I think he does fine work here. But you know, later on in the Oyster Princess and Wildcat and such, he just he's doing like all time masterful work. So uh, you can see the team coming together at least, and I think that does contribute to this feeling like like the Ernst we know. And
1: also, you bringing up Oyster Princess reminded me when I was watching this. The Actually, the musical sequences in this film mm-hmm. are pretty delightful. I mean, it's a, maybe a little primitive compared to to the films that come after this. But again, you can see the seeds of Oyster Princess in this and the later musicals also in the middle when they have this big party that has a roller skating dance number <laughs> in the middle of it, uh, as well as the uh, hobby-made Mitzi, which also... Mitzi is a name that ends up getting reused in one hour with you later on. Uh, yeah. yes, oh, the, that
0: Mitzi! Yes, yeah.
1: <laughs> uh, dances on top of the table at the, at the party. It's almost like when you see uh, Hitchcock's The Lodger, and you're like, oh, it's all there. In 1925, mm-hmm. in 1926, yeah. all the stuff, the Hitchcock blonde, mis- you know, mistaken identity, transfer of guilt, etc., with the Mary jail, I feel like you're, you're having kind of the classic marital comedy, marital sex comedy, uh, the kind of continental attitude towards either flirtation or sex or things that are happening outside of the marriage. And yet the, the husband and wife, they might be upset with one another, but this is not going to bring them to divorce court at the end of the day.
0: It's a game. You have the, I mean, you have the masquerade ball. You have the, I mean, what's echoed later in The Merry Widow, which is this, is this the first, I think it is the first example of this kind of uh, mishmash European country that doesn't exist with names that are deliberately unpronounceable and these these vaguely familiar but alien cultural mores. Like you mentioned the figure skaters, but they're figure skating around this giant snowman. <laughs> it's this, at this embassy, because a lot of this film takes place at this embassy ball. Another thing that Lubitsch would love to return to that you have uh, the name and I I don't think I can pronounce this name. I don't think it's meant to be pronounced, but like Prince (laughs) Zerbochowski, it looks vaguely Polish. It's fantastic. You you start to see these um, almost like comedy routines, but it feels almost too reductive to call them routines because it's almost a whole genre of comedy that feels opened up here that wasn't in a way in like, where is my treasure?
1: One of the other things that in addition to kind of the formal element, there's also a tone that Lubitsch has. I mean, I think American film scholars traditionally in the past have often compared Lubitsch to DeMille, which I've always found a bit off. I know DeMille was also a Paramount director as well, but, you know, DeMille just couldn't get out of the Bible. And those films Mm -hmm. are so like beating themselves for any kind of thirst for pleasure. You have to whip yourself because, you know, you you know, sinned or what have you. And I I just think that Lubitsch's uh, European background and just kind of who he was as a person, he's really not judging his characters. I mean, they're all allowed to have their foible and they're all richly drawn from the kind of the leading characters to the more minor characters in the jail, basically.
0: I feel like DeMille is who Lubitsch could have been had he kept making the giant budget, like Orientalist yeah. epics. Yep. Like if, if, if the director who made loves of the Pharaoh had just kept on going in that vein for 20 years, then I'd get it. But uh, thankfully he watched a woman of Paris.
1: <laughs> right. Exactly. And I have to, I'm so glad you brought that up Devin, because I, I really feel that that is a transformational film in American film history, if not world film history, it's a film that is so underappreciated, I think, in uh, in film history
0: books. And, and just as a little asterisk there, we're referring to um, Charlie Chaplin's 1923 film, A Woman of Paris, which uh, Lubitsch, famously among us Lubitsch fanatics, saw in, in America early on in his American period and he never kind of never looked back from there. You can kind of yeah. see a very clear before and after in his career from when Lubitsch saw that movie.
1: Yeah. It almost became the template for the rest of his career after, after that. And we should also say that I think for Chaplin, you know, Chaplin had, you know, made a certain type of film before this. And, um, you know, like Woody Allen or other famous comedy directors that want to do something serious, this was Chaplin's serious film in which he doesn't appear except for as a small character at a, Night Watchman, I think, or something, in the film, but it, he's unrecognizable. The tone of it and the sense of of irony in the way that Lubitsch, in a way, becomes a character, an invisible character in it, in this film. Looking at his, looking at the characters on display, the way the films are cut, both invites you into those characters' psychological point of view, but also there's an omniscient point of view at the same time that I think that runs throughout his cinema, uh, which makes his cinema so fascinating.
0: Yeah, it's it's this almost um, benign, <laughs> judgment-free, the presence of Lubitsch is never not felt. I think even in the performances, right. I mean, I've one thing I love in his later work, I'm talking about his sound work, is that you can basically get an idea of what... English language Lubitsch sounds like by listening to his actors. If you, for example, ever heard Jack Benny in anything that's not to be or not to be, he doesn't sound like the Jack Benny in that movie in terms of his cadence. Same with Carol Lombard. Some don't. I mean, Greta Garbo just sounds like herself. But in general, his actors, when they speak, you can hear him through that. And it's almost like he is, the actors are an extension of his own personality in that way, more than I see with most directors. Um, I think it also probably contributes the fact that he would like walk through scenes for his actors and essentially give line (laughs) readings.
1: And I also, I would say going to Garbo, I think what he does is he kind of takes away some of her mannerisms. Mm -hmm. And when her mannerisms are there, he's kind of gently mocking her kind of in the way that even though Jeanette MacDonald had not made, you know, had not kind of made the move to MGM when she was doing the Chevalier pictures, those early films, he's kind of putting her up as this kind of beautiful kind of sex object that he's kind of gently kind of poking fun at throughout all of those films. And it's uh, pretty delightful, really. There's not a lot of villains in Lubitsch's work. It's a lot of people that are misunderstood and you understand kind of where they're coming from often.
0: In films when there might be a villain otherwise, let's say Carmen, we're not exactly seeing Carmen, who in the Carmen story is the villain. We're Never really invite to see her as a villain, and in in fact, when I watched that film, I kind of am rooting for her. She's the most alive character in that whole movie. Um, totally. She, at least she, at least she's delightful.
1: I would also I
0: would say Charlotte on the corner.
1: I think has the closest to a villain that I can kind of think of as well.
0: The gigolo, essentially, right? Like yeah, yeah, exactly. The, <laughs> right. Um, oh, I always forget the actor's name, but yeah, I mean, he's almost a villain, even though the film is very. It treats him very humanely.
1: Yes, exactly.
0: You have the Nazis, uh, in to be or not to be, but even, yeah. even, there go. yeah. <laughs> Speaking of which, this might be a good segue to, because this is our first, uh, Emil Jannings appearance in this series. Um, yeah. this is a big moment. One of the yeah. greatest hams. <laughs> I kind of love him in this movie. He's, he is so, I don't know, he, he mugs for the camera like nobody ever has before or since.
1: So true.
0: And the camera mugs back. It just holds on him for so long. In fact, I mean, one, we could probably talk about the editing rhythms in this film. And I think I kind of felt like Lubitsch hadn't quite found his rhythm yet. I almost feel like right. The Oyster Princess exactly. is the first film where I really feel like, oh, yeah, yeah, this is fully formed. Agreed.
1: But I would also say that Yawning's is... Playing, it. I mean, I don't know if Yannis has played a character even similar to this in any other film, and it's it's such an interesting performance because he he'd be what the. The, the guard in the jail essentially. He's
0: the merry Jailer.
1: <laughs> merry Jailer, that's the perfect phrase for him, that has an loving and maybe sexual feelings for, for the people that he is holding captive.
0: And for his superior, for everyone. I mean, it's, it, this is something that I, I think that this is a weird kind of I think, historical irony that's happening in this film that we should probably grapple with. The sentence future Nazi plays camp gay jail guard yeah. doesn't inspire much confidence. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, and yet I, I, I find myself quite impressed by the fact that I can't quite tell if the character is, he's clearly coded gay, but at the same time, I can't quite tell if he's supposed to be, if he's just so drunk that it doesn't matter. He's just l- loving with everybody. It, it's very ambiguous. Right.
1: Well, and also what I would say is, I mean, again, going to kind of Lubitsch's warmth towards all of his characters. mm mm-hmm. He's, he's not played for laughs. I mean, even though he, I mean, there's humor in it and it's funny, but like the characters, you know, when he goes to like kiss the, the people in the jail, the people that he's kind of overseeing in the jail, they all kind of react to him, but they're like, ah, it's, you know, everyone has kind yeah, of like, a like very, well, it's
0: like our friend, you know, our friend <laughs> doing this, Oh, stop yeah. it. There's a distinct lack of queer panic in this movie that yes. I think will, yes. I mean, in I Don't Want to Be a Man, the the, la- the gaping void of queer panic in that movie is, is like one for the ages. It's incredible. I was surprised to see that in this film.
1: Yes. Yeah. Without a doubt. And you can see it later on in Whenever with You also. The Servant, it was Chevalier's kind of valet, says to Charlie Ruggles, I did so want to see you in tights. <laughs> I mean, he gets kind of a double reaction from Ruggles, but uh, you know, it's not. It's just kind of part of the landscape of uh, of these uh, people that are in the film. I, I think that that's something that's really lovely about Lubitsch's. Uh, I don't know if that's part of the Lubitsch touch, but it's definitely part of the Lubitsch um, aura of his films and that. Uh, that uh, I always think of Renoir. Also, uh, when I see so, I mean, there's, you know, these are people that know the rules of the game. These are people that are in society that know what are the next moves that they can make with their husbands or wives or with the police or whoever it is. And it's a delight to watch them going through all of these rituals.
0: To me, this also not only speaks to Lubitsch touch, but to the time and place this film was made. Because this is the same kind of film culture that would produce different from the others 18 months after this. It is the first film to ever portray a, a non-heterosexual relationship, positive light, a reasonably positive light. There's a distinct lack of moral panic here that if Lubitsch would, were to try... I mean, especially with I Don't Want to Be a Man, if, if Lubitsch were to try that, there would be this even pre-code incredible push to... Um, make it clear that, no, no, this is not, you know, in huge natural air quotes, natural, whatever that is. It's such an interesting artifact.
1: You know, essentially, ultimately, Yannins is a lovable, a lovable character, mm-hmm. a lovable goofball alcoholic with, you know, uh, gay tendencies, basically. People treat him as their friend uh, and not as this, you know. Abomination or something. Films that came after that too. But there's a, a William Dieterle film called Sex, Sex and Chains uh, in the 20s. So there's a whole slew of these movies that kind of explore mm. queer identity in the in the teens and 20s which is really unique.
0: As a byproduct of this this show, kind of diving into uh, Weimar-era cinema, and there is much more of that than I think one would expect going in, which is massively rewarding and also, I think, speaks to uh, just how unique that that period in time was.
1: You would, I mean, I think after the, the Hollywood production code, you see, I mean, obviously, Germany, you know, Europe went through its transition as well uh, around the same time and uh it's fascinating to see how progressive our society was uh or was kind of going towards yeah i'm so glad that these films are preserved in this way because it really shows you how sure we've come a long way but There was a period of time before this where that was also in a very uh, progressive state of mind with regard to same-sex relationships and that.
0: It also, I think, um, speaks to the kind of fallacy that, oh, this was so radical that there was a backlash that was inevitable or something like that. You know, it's, no, this was just, I mean, it didn't have to work out the way it did. You know, it was never inevitable. Right. I mean, there is a very plausible alternate history where just this society, the Weimar era Germany, continues on in a far less destructive direction. <laughs> um, right. That, uh, right. you know, one kind of wonders what could have been because it was, there's so much unprecedented human self expression going on.
1: Devin, I have a question for you. Yeah. Like, what, how do you see, I, you know, one of the things that I would say that, uh, Marxist is different than maybe kind of Lubitsch's, you know, in the, I would say the you know, starting with the marriage circle going onward, these German films, how do you see performance in these films? Like when it, in, you're talking about yawnings, mm-hmm. what about the other performers and what speaks to you uh, in the kind of performances on display? In this
0: film. Oh, that's a great question because for me I'm I'm at my most insecure when I'm talking about acting, um, which is uh, <laughs> probably why I went into cinematography and said direction. But what I see in Lubitsch's like let, let's compare his early silence to his late silence, right? Let us say let's yeah. like compare let's compare this film to Student Prince. And you know, both are comedies. One, you know, Student Prince is a tragic comedy. This is a straight-up com farce. In something like Student Prince, the performances in close-up are designed for close-up. You have our two leads. Let's say when they are photographed in close-up, um, there is a nuance and texture to their facial expressions, how they carry themselves, an attention to that detail that I don't see as much in, for example, Harry Leadkey here. You know when he's photographed in close-up, is still, to my eye at least, playing for the wide, right? Uh, or Yennings too, right? Where it's not that he is. <laughs> when Yettings when isn't close up, he is gesticulating his eyebrows for the cheap seats in the back. So there's this kind of maximalism to everything. And I almost think that it's not a straight line between the two either. Right. Like if you watch the oyster princess or the doll or the wildcat, those aren't any less broad than this. They're just, he just leans into that maximalism to like the breaking point in in wildcat where everyone is just running around with their arms flailing at most times. And I think that movie works. (laughs) It's great in that movie. Um, It's a movie designed for that, but I almost feel like his design philosophy for those performances and the movies around them just, radically shifted by the late 20s and especially, you know, by the 40s, right? Where what constitutes a broad performance uh, is mostly about the facial expression and the the pauses between lines and to to quote the cliche, the the notes the actors aren't playing.
1: Absolutely. And I also wonder if part of this tendency for these uh, German films comes from Lubitsch's time as an actor. Clearly, he's a comic. So he knows for going for the big, you know, the big joke and the kind of crazy face or whatever it is that he's making. And you see it in his own performances in his own films. And I think that I wonder, I don't know if we can credit it to Chaplin and woman of woman of Paris, but he definitely becomes much more restrained Mm -hmm. after that. I mean, though in Rosita, that is before the uh, woman of Paris. I mean, I think there's some subtlety in there, but there's definitely a, even a change between Rosita and Marriage Circle.
0: The Yannings character in this, I got the sense that if you've seen Lubitsch in his previous two films, he spends over 50% of his screen time, you know, spiking the camera and mugging and doing, you know, the the eyebrow thing. And I kind of suspect that, like, if Yannings hadn't said yes to this role, we'd currently have yet another Lubitsch part in, in that character, because Yannings' uh, screen presence... In- it, it, it's almost a one-to-one approximation of Lubitsch, I think done much better than Lubitsch did. And you could say the same thing about Osios Oswalda and yeah. all of her appearances, where I almost feel like she is playing the character that Lubitsch designed for himself with, with her very broad gestures. And again, I think, thank God Ernst Lubitsch delegated this to, I think, to people whose talents are more in line with, I think, the requirements of, of that. I, yeah. I have yet, I must admit, I've yet to be really impressed by... Any of the three performances I've seen or Skiff in in his own movies,
1: yeah, I'm right there with you, and that's no slight on Mr. Lubitsch. I just think that uh, he became a, a greater director than he than he was as an actor. I wonder, though. It, I mean, he's clearly using his knowledge of acting when directing mm. his performers. I mean, you, there are so many great off-camera shots of him directing. You know, all the actors that we. We love um, his Hollywood period, so I think it served him well ultimately. But I don't think the early performances aged that well.
0: I do wonder what would have happened if, like, he had just, like, you know, pulled a Sidney Pollock or something and just, you know, returned to acting later on in his career. And and like, what would a Ernst Lubitsch performance circa 1945 uh, look like? That I'm curious about. There's so many alternate histories here we could talk about.
1: <laughs> right. you would be interesting to see if he would ever like, I would love to see him play like a heavy or something in a noir or something, uh-huh. go the Eric von Stilheim route.
0: Even at that point, I'm thinking now of the his habit of casting actors who almost resemble the sensibilities, like in Felix Broussard, in at least two of the his roles, feels like a Lubitsch stand-in right where in shop around the corner his kind of attitude towards everything in life uh, really feels like the character that Lubitsch most sympathizes with and then in to be or not to be you have the implied like not amazing uh, in this case Jewish actor who really wants to play Shylock and that was that's autobiographical for Ernst. So Maybe we should talk a little bit
1: about the the Mitzi character because she kind of I feel like she kind of comes in and kind of steals in the same way that Emil Jannings does. And the audience is kind of is with her in some ways more than the husband and wife, I would
0: say. She's the classic type of Lubitsch sympathetic where she pretends to be something and she's good at it. So therefore, she is that thing. (laughs) Yes,
1: (laughs) I love that. And I also love she reads the letter about, you know, if you do get kissed, uh, at this party, don't look surprised because that's not chic. Uh, you know, just go with it, essentially, which, you know, that's a that's a very Lubitsch kind of thing. And, you know, she gets kissed pretty quickly, quickly gets into that character immediately. She gets very comfortable in that
0: oh yeah and so she's as good at being upper crust as the you know quote-unquote real upper crust people and really exactly. what's the difference at that point there's an interesting thing to alex's relationship with mitzi it's implied i mean at at the moment of that kiss that they have kissed before therefore an affair has been implied and this is yet another i mean iteration of i i can't help but see simon Lubitsch, who's ernst Lubitsch's father uh his influence on his films at this point because this is not the scott amon biography of Lubitsch, but you know kind of intonations of Simon Lubitsch having numerous affairs with housemates at right. certain points and that kind of archetype of the womanizing kind of dandyish character uh, that recurs throughout Lubitsch's career feels to me quite influenced by Simon Lubitsch more than Ernst himself. Yeah,
1: no, I, 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 would agree with you. Um, I mean, from what I, from what I've come to understand is that it was pretty common. Like if you were a house. If you were a maid at a house, Mm -hmm. uh, during that, an earlier time, pre where we are now, that was often a part of the duties that they would have. Mm -hmm. So it was not, I think that was not an uncommon role uh, to play. Um, and clearly, you know, Lubitsch is writing the Mitzi character as kind of, she's she's been around and i think that the, again there's no judgement to it there's no judgement to the husband character i do wonder what I, what i did think about this in our current moment that we live in how this kind of loving this kind of rogue husband that's kind of going out partying coming home drunk Mm -hmm. uh needing to go to jail (laughs) probably has had some affairs while drunk how that would play now and if that would age as well i mean i feel kind of kindly towards him but i can see that might not everyone might feel as kindly or as forgiving as as ernst is or as as I do, essentially, when I'm watching this.
0: You can see the evolution of that even in Lubitsch's work, where this kind of same, I mean, husband, rake character is maybe his single most common archetype in in his whole filmography. And I think Maurice Chevalier is probably the most quintessential version of that. And even by The Merry Widow, 34, that film is about his character learning the error of his ways.
1: Funny enough to put a thread between this film and that film at the end of that film, the final climactic scene is them in a, in a prison cell.
0: If, if you could call it a fairly merry prison. Uh, exactly. Exactly. Oh, boy, I, I, Mary Widow. I cannot wait to get to that movie. That's uh, that film. I've probably seen it more than almost any other movie in history.
1: Uh, <laughs> I think it's a, a magnificent film. I kind of hopscotch around. Mm-hmm. So I'm a one hour with you, trouble <laughs> in paradise to be or not to be Mary Widow. Shop around the corner. They're all kind of big masterpieces for me. I do think the Merry Widow really is deserving of getting like a 4K Blu-ray oh gosh, release, yeah. which sadly, sadly, it is. Um, it's it's a film that like does not get shown very much. I feel like there's so little fanfare given to it and being one of the most sumptuous, maybe the most sumptuous production of Lubitsch's career, and yet he doesn't sacrifice any of his style, even though it's the most ornate film one of the most ornate films that he ever made, I believe.
0: The only available digital version I have, the best available version, I am sure this is the best one, is a Taney P web rip of, of like a <laughs> stream when it was like on demand on like HBO or something. It was something suboptimal and the scan's not great. So it's it's not in as dire a place as the VHS TV rip of student prints, but it's, it's down there. One element of this film that I felt like was a clear case of Lubitsch's ambition maybe outstripping his grasp uh, was the structure of the last 20 minutes where we have this kind of climax arms race you have about four different parallel things going on at once and I was at once just actually quite impressed at the amount of parallel structure in this German comedy from 1917 but simultaneously it it almost it really did feel like every time we cut I'd completely lost track of what had happened since last time was there like there's not a real... The finesse to the juggling i found
1: i remember when i was watching it i actually had to rewind like where is all of this happening it's a, it's a little confusing and i also feel like i think you're right he's also you know not using the close-ups and the other the other little markers that That really uh, show you know the Lubitsch language and how that develops in the twenties and thirties. He has not really does not have that quite yet. So this has like the earmarks of a film from like the mid teens. I think it just feels a little, I don't want to say shoddy, but it's a, it's it, the editing is just not as sophisticated as it would become later on. I think.
0: And it's even like little techniques, like ticks that we take for granted now that had not been necessarily conceived of. Um, and also this is what the asterisks that like, I, I can imagine a film, I mean, intolerance did this that same year where each individual storyline has a different dye bath color. I could easily see a version of this being a million times more coherent. You know, maybe it exists. I mean, uh, it, where each individual plot strand the jail was red you know the uh, the party can be blue that sort of thing and that way Mm -hmm. we're subconsciously cued as to what we're watching but at this point it's every single time it cuts between the plot lines you got to kind of engage your executive function to ground yourself and go where am i because i mean (laughs) mitzi is dressed similarly to Uh, The wife, all the suitors, men are basically identical.
1: (laughs) I think that's the single most confusing part, I think, is that the men look identical to one another.
0: Yes. And then, I mean, the jail, the titular Mary Jail, I mentioned earlier that this, I kind of found the title a bit bewildering for most of its runtime because I'm still a little perplexed by the centrality of the jail because I feel like uh, everything that happens in the jail, which, you know, mostly concerns uh, a secondary character meeting a bunch of other very side characters. It feels so cloistered off in the rest of the film. It's basically the Yanning show.
1: I would say that the jail doesn't really factor into the narrative no. other than that. That's, the, the husband's supposed to go there and this guy that was kind of chasing his wife ends up going in instead of him. Yeah. There's nothing, there's no real follow through on the narrative thread of that.
0: No, it's just kind of like a fun side plot that we cut to. And right. <laughs> that's, that, that's kind of the end of it. I mean, I think it's no coincidence that, so this is Paris spends very little time at the jail. <laughs> But so, yeah, this feels like, I mean, both maybe one of the most significant steps towards being this being the artist that we know and fully gestational and full of things that even, I mean, when was so this was november 1917 and then by the time you get to october 1918 which is the release date of i don't want to be a man so many parts of this like the the uh, the disguises at the ball the kind of uh, games between all genders it's it's already so much more fully formed and functional as its own thing.
1: And I think the Oyster Princess being kind of where it all kind of crystallizes. Yeah.
0: One note here is that this episode was recorded after our Oyster Princess episode. So I'm talking with uh, tons of unearned hindsight, but I uh, look forward to that movie. It's, it's incredible. <laughs> a
1: couple of years ago, Nicola Lubitsch, Lubitsch's daughter, donated some items to the library for preservation, including like a scrapbook of her father's and that. And she and I were kind of emailing back and forth, and we were talking about The Oyster Princess. And I always love what she wrote about The Oyster Princess. And the Oyster Princess, it's like lace. Huh. So I always think, oh, it's like lace, that film, which is in a way, what you could kind of—that's a nice kind of terminology for it—kind of defines Lubitsch's films as a whole. Mm. I think, like lace.
0: In this specific film, it almost feels like he's using the, the ingredients. Uh, they're just, he just hasn't found necessarily the proportions or the final form of those ingredients yet. Even, I mean, even Harry Leakey uh, is—I did not know going into this that he was such a staple throughout this part of his career. It's interesting because the first film of these that I actually watched in this viewing and this kind of run through was Carmen and he's not great in that. And I think that he's not a great fit for that more straight laced tragedy of that film, but he's, I think he's quite good in this and he's fully wonderful in the oyster princess. Um, He's a great drunk.
1: (laughs) Yes. Agreed. Oh, and one thing that I would say, is that, you know, when I was rewatching it, I was kind of trying to, I was looking, if we're going to go back to your interest in formalism,
0: mm-hmm.
1: the one moment that really feels like a Lubitsch technique that is prior to everything kind of coming together for him is really early in the film when the wife is trying to find her husband. She's going to go call the call the police. And then Lubitsch takes the camera and then tracks down to see that her husband is drunk and at the the foot of the uh, de- office desk. Mm-hmm. And it's a great reveal. And he's using the camera to kind of show us something that the wife does not know quite yet. It feels like it's an elegant... One of those things that I wish that the the rest of the film had but it doesn't is that he's using the camera to kind of show us and to move the narrative forward and it's such a small but elegant touch i feel
0: it's the opposite of calling back it kind of presages a lot of his gestures that will become more and more you know fine-tuned because i remember that scene and you know it pans down to him cuts and then he says almost to the camera i'm feeling very badly and at that point i feel like even a few years later Lubitsch would have the confidence to not have him say that all you have to do is look at the guy and you can tell, okay, he's soused. And uh, the the tiles in this film are interesting because um, there's fewer than I would expect having seen the films around it even because i mean if you've seen the american cut of carmen that film is riddled with intertitles and and the european one has less but there's still a lot of them and in this film uh, there's a lot of dialogue scenes where you see the characters talking and you're kind of expected maybe to infer what they're saying but you you're not necessarily given the information you need to to feel confident in your inference,
1: I feel like you can. You definitely see that also early on with the wife, because in the, as you had mentioned earlier, she's speaking very broadly to the back of the house, mm. but she's doing that, I think, in a way to communicate without, in a way, without using subtitle or intertitles. Basically, we we know exactly what she's inferring, and we get we get a sense that she's on to her husband and what he's up to. I,
0: I can I can see what. Lubitsch is going for with you know trying to communicate as much as possible without having to just tell us the audience and then it's this fascinating uh, again I I hate to use the word transitional but it's, it's he's working towards an end goal that he I think he has in mind <laughs> or, yeah but uh, is, is is building his toolkit
1: looking at this through kind of a formal lens he hadn't yet quite developed if you look at Trouble in Paradise and the way that he uses the camera to cut to the you know, the bed is the source of problems. He will cut to inanimate objects and the inanimate object relate to the narrative, but they also kind of form this other kind of position. I think the hat in Ninochka is this kind of ridiculous object and yet it is imbued with so much meaning uh, and yet it's a ridiculous object. As uh, Devin and I were talking earlier uh, before we started recording, the Japanese filmmaker uh, Yesenjiro Ozu is one of my, it's actually my favorite filmmaker, but a filmmaker that learned a lot from Lubitsch. And both filmmakers use a lot of the same techniques in different, maybe slightly different ways. If anyone has ever seen Ozu's film Late Spring, where Setsuko Hara on the night before she's supposed to get married and yet it's a marriage that she doesn't really want. She'd rather stay and live with her father. Ozu kind of cuts to Setsuko Hara's face at night while she's supposed to be sleeping, and then cuts to a vase on the other side of the room. The vase has no narrative meaning, and yet when we cut back to Hara in bed, it—I am not. I think there's many many things that that object could be, and yet it's. Both mysterious and 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 helpful in terms of the narrative, and yet it also kind of means something. I think Lubitsch is kind of moving towards all of that. When he's doing that, that's not dialogue heavy. If you looked at another great director from the '30s, like a George Cukor, who also uses great you know Hollywood actors, uh, is also a women's director, also worked with Garbo, uh, Catherine Hepburn, yet he's pretty much almost an entirely Script-driven director, and I think that Lubitsch, as much as he's uh, you know bound to his scripts, is a filmmaker. Almost, I would also compare him to Hitchcock in a way because he's using his actors in a certain way, but yet he has full command of the technical arts of the cinematic process, and he's using these you know objects like hats or beds or perfume bottles or whatever it is. Uh, To signify something, what that is, is I think up to the viewer, Mm -hmm. but it adds a, a layer of complexity that is not there in any other filmmaker from that era, I believe.
0: And I think part of what I find so rewarding about this is seeing that complexity slowly form we're seeing the point at which most filmmakers get off, right? This is the point at which most filmmakers achieve. And that's, that's, a, that that's their peak, right? They're doing, this is a reasonably functional film and right. yet seeing him just continue to, and just, it's not a linear path, seeing the, 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 the kind of the, the flows and eddies of all this.
1: I'm, uh, I'm excited to uh, watch all of these films kind of in sequence with you and, uh, and hear the rest of the podcast and how all of these, uh, oh, and also your, I mean, your thoughts, Devin, because uh, you know as you are discovering these films, I'm really interested in knowing how you are going to be putting the pieces together, going through all of these chronologically.
0: I look forward to it, and I also look forward to you coming by on our one hour with you episode. Oh, thank you. that's going to be a lot of fun. That's uh, it's actually it's interesting because that's a film where the first time I watched it, um, I watched in between Love Me Tonight and the Merry widow. And to right. me, it's like the middle, middle child of those three, even though again, it came first because I was so blown away by love me tonight. And then so blown away by Mary widow, that film kind of came in the middle as like, Oh, that's also good. So I I'm, I'm looking forward to just giving each film the space it needs to it's, fully flower in my mind.
1: I love it. Well, you know, it's funny. Cause I saw, I saw when I were with you on a double bill with love me tonight with love me tonight being the second film.
0: Mm-hmm a better order.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think it was a better order. And also because I, well, I really love Love Me Tonight. And there's a lot of, I mean, it, it, that's a great film in and of itself. And it's, you know, Mamoulian's kind of satire of the Lubitsch the operettas from that era. But what I realized that it did, that I'm not as much a fan of all the kind of in camera tricks, the speeded up Uh, films, you know, the film speeding up at certain points and kind of the archness of it. I mean, it's really inventive. It's almost Wellsian in in a way. It was the way that Lubitsch held back in one hour with you that really touched mm-hmm. me. And I think we all have our first film by a great filmmaker that really speaks to us. Like I think of, you know, Almodovar, my first film was Matador. It's still kind of my favorite film by him. Chan King Express uh, was my first one car. Wai. that's still kind of my favorite film by him.
0: Oh yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll give you that one. Uh, that was not my first film by Wong Kar Wai, but it is my favorite.
1: Yeah. 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 I mean, there's, there's something so vibrant in that film, you know, and it's, when a great filmmaker speaks to you for the first time you know and just really the arrow piercing your heart mm-hmm. uh from that filmmaker's style and that and for me that that was one arrow with you but i fully see what you're saying because i mean i think both mary widow and love me tonight are great on their own terms i'm all about re- reigniting the public's love for Jeanette mcdonald and marie chevalier
0: uh, thank you so much for joining us, Matt, for making the time on this tremendously obscure, available on YouTube, though, for all listeners, uh, Ernst Lubitsch film from 1917, The Merry Jail. We'll look forward to seeing you on the next one.
1: Thank you so much, Devin. It was a lot of fun. Thank
0: you. Next week, Peter Labuza joins us to discuss I Don't Want to Be a Man. Head over to www.ernstcast.com for the links to the various public domain films we'll be discussing this season and other resources such as show notes. How Would Lubidge Do It? is a production of Moving Image Agency. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on whatever podcast service you happen to use. We'd like to acknowledge that this podcast was produced on the unceded territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples.